And I know you've been up and down a few times already, but if you would, once more here now, stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we respect it as special among any other kind of literature. I'm going to read two passages, the first of which is from Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. And then I'll turn to our primary passage, really just back a few pages in our Bibles to Acts 17, verses 1 to 4. So here is Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 10. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you would flip back then to Acts chapter 17, regarding Paul and Silas in the early church. Acts 17 from verse 1. Now when they, Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Thank you for honoring God's word. You may be seated. Now, it seems to me there is one thing Easter cannot be. That Easter cannot be of little significance. I could see some in the culture saying, you know, it's of no significance that this whole business of Jesus being raised, of, um, you know, the language of the church just wants to make people feel good. It's not anchored in anything real. And in that case, then Easter really is just an excuse to get together with your family, many of whom you probably don't want to see. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, Easter is of really no importance. It's a fable. On the other hand, you say the kind of claim that we're exploring today, that God raised the brutalized body of the Galilean carpenter from the grave, that if that happened, which we as members of Providence Church do believe that that happened, then that event becomes the ultimate thing. It becomes in many ways the only thing that matters. It would mean that there's a God that he authors life and death, that he makes a claim on my life, that he's given me a purpose, that Jesus is his son, that I should yoke myself to Jesus. You say all of that falls into place, and the raising of Jesus the Nazarene is of supreme significance that shapes eternity and our lives here. So you see what I mean? Most of us who 
are in the land of eggs and bunnies that when I say most of us, most of our culture, little significance, have a little bit more special brunch today because it's Easter. To me, that makes no sense of all. Either this is no bearing on us whatsoever or it's of such supreme significance that it makes a claim on how I conduct my affairs today and will determine the course of my eternity. And again, I hope you know where we stand as a church that this, in a cluttered culture, is the only question and the most significant things we, thing we can be turning our attention to today. Now, in Acts 17, I suppose after 12 years of pastoral ministry, I'm known a bit for taking unconventional messages at holidays, just the way I do it. I like people to think of things from a different angle. So Acts 17, 1 to 4. Make a couple of moves here this morning, as we normally do, and I want to begin with this question. Is there such a thing as reasonable faith? A reasonable faith. You know, when people talk about that, I fear that they, you know, they'll spill over onto one of two sides. On the, on the one hand, the last certainly a couple hundred years in the history of things, you had those spill over into the kind of what we call rationalism. So they say people find out I'm a pastor. They say, you know, pastor, prove there's a God. And what they mean by that is if I could, you know, somehow break off a chunk of God and put him under the microscope and, you know, test him in the laboratory and me to say, oh, there you go. There's a little chunk of God. Now won't you believe? Or if not that, then they expect me to have a short little syllogism, you know, a few statements, you know, say, well, you know, I, I want you to string together some logic and I reach back in my back pocket proverbially and I string those couple of sentences together and I say, there, there's a God. Do you believe in him? That's what the rationalistic camp would have us think about as we bring up reasonable faith. But let's face it, if those kinds of things were possible, you'd be totally unimpressed with God, wouldn't you? If I could just say a few sentences and say, there he is, or take him to the nearest lab and say, there he is, what you'd say is, I don't I wouldn't worship that God at all. He's a thing or an idea like other things. He's just like other matter that we make or that is in the natural world. Say, God then would just be another thing. And you know how people, you know, they'll, they'll ask a question like this. So you believe that God made the heavens and the earth? Well, who made God? So you get that question a lot. But you see what the premise is. The premise in that question is God is a made thing like all other made things. He's just in a sequence of stuff. He's just like what you can observe. He's, he's like gravity or something. Say, there he is. You can test him. Now believe. If that was the case, we would not believe in this God. So I would submit to you that when we talk about a rational or a reasonable faith, we're not going to spill over into a kind of rationalism that puts God in a box. That convinces no one. That's not the way God is. On the other hand, you can spill off on the other side. So you got the rationalists over here. You have over here that historically has been called the, the fideus. It's from a Latin root, but the fideism is what you might call blind faith, just belief. A lot of damage, I think, in the church from a kind of fideism. Don't ask your questions here. We all know that's a serious matter. It's the elephant in the room. But just, you can't answer, you, you can't ask real questions in church. Just believe whatever the pastor's saying and just kind of plow through and pretend on the rest of it. You've got to just believe, just believe. Turn a blind eye. See, I fear the church has missed tremendous opportunities with that kind of fideism and quite frankly created a lot of damage with younger people that church ought to be the place where any question should be asked. 
Say, let's, if there's a God who made the cosmos, he's the author of all life. He's given me a mind to think and lungs to breathe. You say, do you think there's any question that would intimidate him? That there's be any question that God would say, well, I'm really, that's really off limits. You can't ask that of me. Say, no, not at all. Say, we're to ask real questions of life, to think about things. And that's what I'm driving at here, a reasonable faith. Not rationalism, where God is like another thing in a created order. And not fideism, that is a blind faith, but a reasonable faith. And so if you glance down now at our passage, you say, where are we going with this? You look at verse 2. Paul went in to the synagogue, as was his custom, that this is a well-worn pattern, and he goes in to those who do not believe in Jesus, and notice what he does. He reasons with them. If you have your physical Bible, right, you just go forward in Acts 17. You'll notice that others are examining things. And Acts 17 and verse 17, right, he's reasoning again. That time in the marketplace, he's reasoning. Verse 20, right, he's exploring things with the philosophers, and they're asking, what does this stuff mean? If you go over to the next page, Prisca and Aquila are there, and he reasoned with them, 18 and verse 4. This is Paul's normal pattern to go into those who don't know Jesus and begin to reason with them, to think about things. And you'll notice the vehicle of doing this, that this will surprise you. What is the, the method by which the reasoning is done? It comes, I think, in verse 3, where he says, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming. That the method by which Paul reasons with the people is through a sermon. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about proclaiming and preaching. Almost always in our culture, preaching and proclaiming is negative. You know what most people say? Well, that guy is up there. He thinks he's got something that everybody else needs, and he's going to tell us the way it is. You say, that's normally the way. She'll say, oh, don't, don't preach at me. You know, it's even a saying, don't, don't preach at me. Don't pretend that you've got some information uh, that I need, and uh, that we would just won't have any of that. I, I recall the one person who quipped about preaching they said it's a a monstrous monologue from a moron to mutes you heard that rather not a a low view of preaching there but what i'd have us think about today is actually what the sermon is that it's a method of reasoning and if we uh you know don't often do this but if you see that word there in verse two reason with them the root of that word interestingly is dialogue he dialogued with them Say, how in the world is a sermon a dialogue, right? So we do a great disservice if we think, well, I'm just up here and unpacking nuggets to all of you. But no, it is a dialogue, and I hope we're a church family that every week as we sit under God's word, that we talk about these things. That's the point, right? That's the point of being in a church family, that you work it out together, that you ask questions in your homes and in your small groups and at a church family at large. Say, is this true? Is this claim true? We gotta ask the big questions of life. We reason with each other. And the sermon is the mechanism by which we start that dialogue. Secondly, you'll see what Paul does there, verse 3, right? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, and he explains to them. How significant is that, that the claim of Jesus suffering and rising, the events of Easter, are things that can be understood? One of the saddest things for me as a pastor is when I come across people that think, Uh, They can't understand the Bible. So the Bible is a product of the ancient Near East. There are some things, as you read it, you say, that's very strange to our culture because it was written thousands of years ago, millennia ago. There are some things in there. You just say, 
I've got to do more investigation there. But for the most part, as we come with expectant hearts and say, God, will you open up my eyes to Jesus and to your word? I pray that you find that the Bible can be understood and that other Christians in your church family, we work together to work out the meaning, that it can be comprehended. That's what Paul's saying, right? He's reasoning with them. Let's ask the big questions of life. Let's open up the Bible and explain it. And in fact, that word explains, again, what it means beautifully is to open up. Say, so we're not embarrassed of God's word. We open it up, work out what it says, have a dialogue, be reasonable about it, ask the big questions of it, and build each other up in that truth. You say, do you think that's what's happening, I pray, in our church? I actually pray in our church that it might be... For, for a lot of us, it might be the only place where we're able to ask the big questions. I appreciate we have jobs that challenge us. I mean, you say, okay, here comes a dilemma in my job. I've got to solve this, or I've got to think about this formula, or this is a tough people problem, and I've got to work out some conflicts. Say, that's actually good. You want to be engaged in the workplace and challenged. But where do you ask the questions about what really matters? And when I think about what really matters, it was given to me many years ago, um, most people will want to know answers to origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origins. Why is there something rather than nothing? Meaning. Does my life have a purpose? Is what I'm doing really matter? Morality. How should I behave? Is there a right way to do things? Are there things that are out of bounds? If I do things that are out of bounds, is that going to be self-destructive and damaging to others? That's morality and destiny. Where do I go when I die? Those are not religious questions. Those are the big questions of life. Why am I here? How should I live? What's right? What's wrong? What happens when we die? And I would ask you, say, I hope that at church and in your church family that this is a place where you say we don't dwell in the land of of. of you know, I love sports. Tell the boys, all, you know, sports are good, entertainment for fun. You don't dwell in the land of sports or in weather and climate and, and this or that. But you say, really, what really, what really matters? And these are things that really matter. And church, as God, God's word would be open, should be the place where we ask those big questions. Now, I submit to you, think about this. If God, as we in this church teach, raised Jesus from the grave, you filter those four questions through that lens. Say, there's a God who's the author of life, that I'm not here by accident. He ordains my days and my places. I know where I come from. I come from an all-wise and good creator. Meaning, well, I have a purpose insofar as I've been made, that I can, as I know God, I can find out what I'm to do with my life. Morality, well, I better get to know Jesus Christ a lot better because he's, uh, again, the one that God's chosen vehicle to reconcile the world to himself, that what does Jesus teach us about how to live, and destiny, that as I trust Jesus, I too can be raised. You see, all the big questions of life, the things we really want to know, we find answers to in the claim of Easter. So what do you think? I'm asking you now. What do you think? Can this be of marginal significance? You're more than welcome to say it's of no significance. It's all made up. I disagree with the questions. We can't know the answers to the questions. Or you can say this is pretty serious business. And God's raising Jesus 
has changed everything. It's transformed the life of those of us members of this church, the Christians in the congregation, and that that invitation can go to those who don't trust Jesus, don't trust him yet. So the first matter, again, to think about this week, is there such a thing as, as a reasonable faith? Can we see ingrained in our tradition that there is a reasonable faith where we have a dialogue about things, where we find real meaning to real questions that, to God's great glory, is a part of our, our tradition. Now, secondly, notice where the reasoning comes from, that Paul, on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's a very important preposition. You have a lot of pastors, right, that they can reason and then add in a bit of Scripture, or they can reason and then put it into Scripture. Paul's method is to reason out of, from the Scripture that God has given us His Word, and out of that is what's to generate what we think about. Again, it's not the pastor making these things up, I pray not, but rather it is God's giving us his word that's shaping the way we think and framing our questions so that we might please him and so that we might be built up in this truth. Now, what you ask, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That's quite a claim. That from the scriptures, Paul thought it was necessary for Jesus to die and to rise. What are the scriptures at the time of Acts 17? It's not what we would call the New Testament. The New Testament had not yet been written. So what the scriptures are, are the Hebrew Bible. So some of us think of the Hebrew Bible, say all those laws about oxen and about the Levites and about the temple and the structures, that that's so what Paul would say is no that in the scripture God showed us that this is exactly what was going to happen that he was going to put forth Jesus who was going to suffer on the behalf of his people and that he would raise Jesus from the dead so think of this too here's the way Jesus talks about it in Luke 24 everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms it's a way of saying the whole Hebrew Bible must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus says, The Hebrew Bible says that I am to suffer and to be raised from the dead. Or how about Paul? 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, very early tradition here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures, same kind of thing. So the Hebrew Bible lays out God's salvation plan. Friends, here's the significance. Easter is not an accident. Oh man, terrible, terrible story. I mean, just shocking that this poor carpenter, I mean, what, a, what misfortune to be hung on the cross. I mean, this guy, and it's a really nice illustration for us when we're struggling, you know, but, you know, happy accident, I guess we make of it. no. God's saying from the foundation of the earth, he knew that his creation would rebel against him, right? Each of us turn our own way and do our own thing and make a mess of everything. And God says, I'm going to send forth my son into history that all those who trust in him and the sacrifice he made on the cross, they can be reconciled to God and restored. That's the whole point of it all. The Bible is one story. That The whole Bible is one story about God's rescue mission. God sent Jesus as a rescue mission 
for his creation that has rebelled against him. And Paul's logic, as you see, in Acts 17, the movements seem pretty clear. We all know that there's going to be a Christ, a Messiah. If you've been coming to Providence for any length of time, you know that we talk about this a lot, that in the Hebrew Bible, there's always frequent promises to a coming king. Yes, the people of God are rebelling, but one day there's going to be a king who comes, and in that king, he's going to restore all things, restore us to our maker, and we're longing for this, the, the long-expected king. Interestingly, that the Hebrew Bible also says that long-expected king is going to suffer a lot. You wonder where Paul, you wish you had the whole sermon preserved, but God in his infinite wisdom did not preserve the whole sermon, but you wonder, you say, why did the Messiah need to suffer? Listen to something like Psalm 22. This figure of the promised king is speaking. It's, uh, the poem is put in the voice of the promised king. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the future king who's coming... A thousand years before Jesus is going to be pierced in his hands and his feet. He's going to be mocked, and his garments will be, they'll, be, they'll cast lots for his garments. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 made reference to this a moment ago. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the future king, but the Lord has laid on this coming king the iniquity of us all. They say, put those two strands, there's going to be a king who comes who restores all things. This same coming king is going to suffer terribly. He's going to be pierced and beaten and mocked. And then the third piece of the puzzle, right, is that this king is going to live eternally and is closely approximated and at times called God. That the throne, his throne will never end, that he'll live forever, so something like Psalm 16, verse 10, what Peter preaches in Acts 2, for you will not abandon my soul, the Messiah speaking to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, this figure who suffers terribly, who's beaten to the point of death and in fact dies, he will not see corruption, but in fact live forever. You see, you put those three things together from the Hebrew Bible, we're all waiting for a king. The king's gonna restore all things. The king's gonna suffer terribly on behalf of his people, but that same king is gonna live forever and unite all things. And that's what Paul's preaching. He's saying, this Jesus, can't you see? This is God's instrument to reconcile the world. Can't you put it all together? That's why it's necessary. It's necessary because God predicted it from the beginning of time. And also, friends, I hope this week that it wasn't lost on any of us that this paradigm of suffering and resurrection is the pattern of life for the church. That this is strange to the American mind, and long in the past, I think early Christians, they wouldn't be surprised about this. To, to be a follower of Jesus is to act as an obedient sufferer. That we follow King Jesus no matter the cost, and we pledge our allegiance to Jesus no matter how strange and weird people think that we are. And that Jesus, during Holy Week, and Good Friday, he suffers 
and in turn, God raises him to victory. That is the pattern of our lives. And I would go so far as to submit, even in the disappointments and the real sufferings of our everyday life can follow this paradigm. See, you get the bad medical diagnosis. You know, your kid's rebelling. Say, this is a little bit of suffering here now, or a lot of suffering here now. Say, we, that's crucified with Jesus and raised with him. Remember the uh, Romans 6 passage, right? That we've died in sin, we've died to the world, and in Jesus, it's raised up that his obedient suffering becomes the very pattern of life for the church. I'm struck by the fact that I, you know, most people I interact with, maybe you too, certainly most people in our church, could even say all, have very good lives. Then most of us have a better life than a vast, vast majority of people who've ever lived on this planet. And yet life is still very hard. And in our parish, there are many tears. There are many tears. This past year, talking this morning to some of you, you've lost loved ones. At holiday times, you're thinking about the loved one you lost. You've had tremendous disappointment. You're wrestling with a serious addiction. You feel depressed and anxious. Say, this world is filled with many demons and devils and it's a sad and broken world and aren't you happy that this paradigm of Jesus suffering in the world with us and like us gives us hope when God raises him from the dead that all those intimidating and disappointing things in life that as we trust Jesus that those things too shall be raised in victory and on this point I, I ask you just a little practical application here you know, GQ Magazine back in 2018 gave this article about books you don't need to read anymore because they're, they're irrelevant. And on there was the Bible. I pray that this would help us pause and to say, could it be the Bible is God's overall rescue plan? That it fits together perfectly. It's always God's plan to have Good Friday and Easter. And that as we read again afresh, that we would be encouraged, that we would be changed that we would become committed to God's word. I pray so. So the moves that we've made, Acts 17, verses 1 to 4, right? That there is such a thing as a reasonable faith. That we can explain things. That we work out the meaning as a church family. That's always been, always been what the church has done. That that comes from the scriptures. That it's one story. Jesus saw himself in the story. The church is in the story. We play a part in the play. That's how we know what we're to do in the play that it should be encouraging and edifying to us. Lastly, that the grace of God extends even to you. And I say that, that God deals graciously with sinners. Do you see the impact of this? That as Paul would preach and proclaim Jesus, that he's not offering free burritos, that he's not uh, offering gimmicks, but he's preaching Jesus. What really matters? Think about it. God put forth Jesus. Will you turn to him? It's great news for us sinners. Turn to him. And what happens, you'll see, is that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. In other words, not just did Jewish people in the synagogue come to faith, but the nations came to faith, and even the leading women say, this to me is a great uh, source of encouragement to our faith, that you talk to people in this congregation. You get to know people in this congregation. You listen to their stories. Most unlikely converts. 
People that they would say, we were so far away from Jesus when we wanted nothing to do with God, clenched our fist at God, we were so far gone, and Jesus got a hold of my heart. There are those who were raised in terrible circumstances and abused and terrible, terrible things, and God rescued them and restored them and healed them. Others of us said everything was handed to us. We had more material means than ever. We had no use of God, and yet God convicted me and drew me in, men and women, Greeks and Jews. Come, follow Jesus. He got, God put him forth in history. Will you follow him? Think about it. That's the way our movements always spread. What really matters? And this grace is, extends to you. Members of Providence Church, on this Easter, I pray that as you think about the resurrection that you're filled with hope and joy, confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in the risen Lord Jesus that you more than ever are prepared with courage to follow him no matter the cost because he reigns on high and this is the only question, this is the only significant matter that he reigns and lives and that we would build each other up in that truth, pressing that into the culture and the times in which we live. If you're not a Christian, can what we've been exploring this morning be only a little deal? Is that even possible? You can say it's of no deal, but I'd caution you against that. I did a little exercise this week. I just thought about two, two of my non-Christian friends sitting at the coffee shop, and I could see them having a dialogue like this. See if you can picture two non-Christian friends over coffee talking like this. We've tried to be so smart with our money, but inflation is at a 40-year high. We have insurmountable and growing debt, and many are concerned about another global financial collapse. We thought our foreign policy and things like NATO would put an end to territorial wars in modernizing countries in Europe, and yet we turn on the news and we witness the savagery in a place like Ukraine. We tried very hard for stability in the Middle East and for all of our financial resources and all of our high-minded efforts, things look the same. We've taken great pride in urbanization and urban planning, and yet our city centers are increasingly violent and dangerous. We funded good medicine. We've gotten behind science, and yet we couldn't avoid a worldwide pandemic whose nearest equivalent would be the influenza outbreak of 1918. We've attempted to conquer world famine, and yet in the last 24 months, we've regressed. We've invested in technologies that have tried to democratize ideas and give people voices with the aim of creating harmony and equity, and yet we have more division and hatred than ever. We've had a sexual revolution, and yet we have more sexual harassment claims and more confusion on simple things like the body than we've ever had. And you know, most of all, we fired God, who's really responsible for everything. Could you see the Lord Jesus walking up in that coffee shop? Say, you've behaved most unreasonably, that I've told you all along that there's been a rebellion against God's created order, that the problem isn't an insufficiency or a lack of human thinking, but rather too much reliance on ourselves, would you please be real reasonable people and turn to the Messiah? Turn to Jesus, the one who says, all things will be reconciled in myself. Would we recognize that we're part of the problem, not part of the solution, that we too need to be saved? And this is the most reasonable thing. And I close now the same way Cotton Mather did in a sermon in 718. The sermon title is A Man of Reason. 
And he ends that sermon saying to his congregation, we're all dying. So do the reasonable thing. Examine the claims of Jesus. Think about what really matters to you. Did God raise him from the grave? And if that's the case, does that shape your very life? You show our allegiance to Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame, we're told. Congregants, may we trust in Jesus all the more. We are not ashamed of him. Non-Christians here today, I challenge you, think about this. Ask the big questions. No question is too big. God raised Jesus from the dead. This too can shape your life as you trust him, as he cleanses you and heals you and restores you and gives you purpose. So I'll invite the team back up for our final uh, Easter hymn. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have given us minds to think, that you don't just say blind faith and you're not just in the created order like another thing, but you've come into history, that you've transformed our lives and in that, that our reason can come in support of our faith. We know we can't reason our way to you. Many smart people don't believe in you, but when you open our eyes and you change our hearts, that our reason then kicks in and we can see this to be the most reasonable position. Lord, I pray that as we look, we did that exercise in the way that things are going, that our eyes would really say, what's happening here? That we need a savior. We're not as smart as we think we are. Lord, I pray that you would raise up this church to be a family committed to you, not shallow followers, but really committed to you, that we would, just as Paul did, to say, reason with people to say, Jesus has come in. There's a better way, the most excellent way. And that many of our non-Christian brothers and sisters, a few of the leading women, the devout secularists, that they too would come to a faith in Jesus. Use us that way, we pray. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead so that we have hope and joy. In Christ's name, amen.